Amen. Go ahead and grab your seat, grab your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We've got a lot of work to do this morning, so uh, if you could go ahead and get to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, as I was looking at this passage today and, and praying through how to preach it, one of the things I thought about is what makes hoarders hoard. You ever watch the TV show Hoarders? You ever, uh, and it can be therapeutic to watch that and realize you're not as bad as you thought you were, uh, hopefully. Or if you are watching Hoarders and finding way too much resemblance in the TV show, you should reach out for help. Uh, but you watch it and you see these people at, to such great extremes hoard just so much stuff. And one of the consistent themes that you find is the reasoning behind holding on to these things is we overestimate the potential value of something that will likely never deliver what we think it will. Uh, As a matter of fact, I'd say you're far more likely to forget that you even had it and at the moment that you need it, go get a new one. Uh, And then you'll remember, oh yeah, I had that one I've been holding on to for just such an occasion as this, but there it is somewhere hidden in your attic or garage or storage room or junk drawer or something like that. Um, I'm not here to convict you about being a hoarder at your house, but just that idea of putting more value on something that will never deliver than we should is what I kept thinking about in this passage in Uh, And not all those things are sinful. It is incredibly true that sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Always. Every time when we are going through temptation, man, sin whispers a promise that it cannot deliver. It writes a check it cannot cash. We always are overpromised and underdelivered when it comes to sin. But I, I want you to understand that not only do we do that with sinful things. We do that with temporary things. We hold on too tightly. And it's not that they're bad things, but when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing, you've now moved something out of being a gift from God to being your God. And how do you know when you've done that? When you're so scared to lose it that you won't hand it over to God. When if God were to say, I need you to place that in my hands, you hold a tight grip and you cling to it. There's a translation uh, of the prayer that Jonah prays in Jonah chapter 2, where he says in that translation, uh, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Paul is going to show us in our text today When we cling to worthless things, we will miss what God really has for us. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you would stand, let's go ahead and dive in. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason 
for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, as we come before you in scripture this morning, I ask ask that you would use me as a vessel, as a broken vessel, or that you would give me wisdom, that you would speak through me with Holy Spirit power and effectiveness, and Lord, that we would crush the idols in our lives, and we would not cling to worthless idols, but we would cling to you, that you Lord, would be our greatest pursuit. God, please do this good work in our hearts through your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Several things to look at in this passage, and as always, we have to look at the context and understand what's happening in the book as a whole, what, what, what has led up to this conversation, how did we get to this part of what he's saying. And so uh, last week we looked at the example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus as they kind of lived out and fleshed out what we see earlier in Philippians chapter 2 of what it means to have the mind of Christ. In the beginning of Philippians 2, Paul gives us this absolutely impossible task of having the mind of Christ, of putting the interest of others above ourselves, of doing nothing, of selfish ambition, rivalry, or conceit. But he gives us the good news that that That's ours. It's ours to be had through the fruit of the gospel, through Christ. And then he, in my opinion, kind of brings it a little more down to earth as we go from Christ is the one we get to look to. And then Paul still seemed a little too varsity for me to try to attain. And maybe even Timothy is is higher than I'm going to be able to accomplish. But then Epaphroditus seems like a regular guy. Uh, for the most part, and I can look to that, and I can see how this fleshes out, and how we can have this through Christ, and he takes a turn here, and when he uses this word translated in the ESV as finally, we love to poke fun and say he must be a Baptist preacher and have seven conclusions, because he's nowhere near done, but that's not actually what the word here means, it means so then, it's a continuous connection to what's come before it. It's really a reminder of how much context matters. Everybody say context matters. When you look at the word of God, you have to understand that the whole thing is connected. And when he says, finally, he actually means, so then, 
Because of everything I've said from chapter 1, verse 1, to this point, what do you do with that? What, how does this play out? How does this apply into our lives to understand the gospel in the way that he points it out in chapter 1 and, and in chapter 2 to have the mind of Christ? What do we do with that now? So then, first off, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances. He had just talked about rejoicing with Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus had come. If you remember, the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Paul to minister to him both financially and relationally and in priestly ways as it describes it in the original language. And it were meant for him to stay for a while, but he almost died. And then the Philippians got super concerned because they really love Epaphroditus and they were all freaked out that Epaphroditus almost died, and then that stressed out Epaphroditus, and that stressed out Paul. And so Paul basically goes, look, let's just clear everybody's anxiety, and I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you so that you may rejoice in being in his presence again. But then he says, so then, rejoice in the Lord. That if we will learn how to rejoice in the Lord and in good and bad circumstances, find our strength and our joy in Him, then when the world throws us curveballs, we can stand. We can stand strong with the Lord. We can rejoice not in what's going on, but in whose we are. And then he says an interesting thing, and this translates really weird into English. This sentence, if you read it, you may go, what is he even saying? I don't know what's going on here. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Okay, Paul, what does that even mean? Well, what he's saying is, what I'm about to talk to you about, this isn't the first time we've had this conversation. And it's good and not a trouble to me to be repetitive to you. As a matter of fact, that it's safe for you, is it's a safeguard for you. So in other words, Paul is telling the Philippians, the subject matter we're about to dive into is worth repeating on a regular basis, and I don't mind doing it because it helps keep you safe when I am so repetitive with this. And so one of the things I just want to side note hit here is repetition is not a bad thing. Um, one of the things that people love to pick on modern praise and worship songs about how they repeat things over and over and over again, and, and that's fine. Maybe you don't like that. Just prepare your heart. From what I've read, we're going to sing the word holy a lot when we get to heaven one day. It's going to be over and over and over again, and I don't think you're going to grow tired of it then. And here's what I would even say is uh, when it comes to the way that we do church, the methods, the means, and the men will change, but the message does not. Uh, we should be a same things over and over and over church. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you figured this out yet. I only really have one sermon, and I just preach it through different text every Sunday morning. And maybe you've picked up on that, that I'm just going to keep telling you the same things over and over again. But I think that's honestly what the Bible does for us, is it continually points us back to Jesus like a car that constantly goes out of alignment. We constantly need that aligning of the gospel in our lives, that the gospel is not something that we receive when we get saved and then we graduate from there on into good Christian living, that the way good Christian living, quote unquote, happens is when we are constantly aligned back 
with the gospel. And I want to tell you, the gospel is a deep well of which you will never, ever find the bottom. So, so yes, repetition is a good thing. So when Paul says, uh, I'm going to be telling you these same things again, and it's no trouble to me. It doesn't bother me to keep bringing this up. Uh, And actually, it's really good for you. It's for your safeguard for me to do this. So what is this thing? What is this subject, that this nail that he's going to keep on hammering? Well, if you remember when we preached the book of Galatians, he hammered it hard in the book of Galatians. It's the Judaizers. Judaizers are a group of people that come from a Jewish background and have professed faith in Jesus Christ as the sent one, as the Messiah. And they are saying, yes, Jesus died for you on the cross, sent by God to pay for your sins. But in order to really be saved, you better get circumcised too. And you better follow all these Jewish laws. And you better make sure that you're doing these things and these things and these things. And they list out all these Jewish laws. And and see, we... We, we know how Paul really feels about this when we read the book of Galatians. Some of the most interesting uh, language and insults from Paul come in the book of Galatians. When he actually says, of those who agitate you, I wish they would just cut the whole thing off. Now, if you know, you know what that means. And I'm not going to go into the details of what he's saying, but Paul's words get pretty intense when it comes to this subject. Now, why does he get so mad about this one specific thing that he's going, look, I don't mind bringing it up again. I'll bring it up again and again and again and again. Well, because the idea here is they have taken the pure gospel and added our works to it. And what we are going to see today and what we have to understand in Scripture is that the gospel, the, the, the bad news of the gospel is far worse than you could imagine it to be. You are far more without Christ, an enemy of God, than you actually will realize until you meet eternity. But the good news of the gospel is far better than you could imagine. Far better. That as, as bad as we are without Christ, that his gospel is so sufficient. It is so enough. Jesus is so enough that it wipes all of that away. It doesn't just wipe it away. I mean, that's mercy, that's, but, but it's grace that he also then blesses us. He says, listen to me, the gospel is not just about you being forgiven. It's about you being redeemed, about you being loved, about you being adopted, about you being blessed and gifted. And Paul is frustrated because they've tried to make following Jesus about how Jewish are you. And what we're going to see is they can't beat him at this. And as a matter of fact, because he knows that Judaizers are pushing this, pushing this idea that you've got to be so Jewish, uh, he's really intentional at this first dig that he brings here in verse 2 when he says, look out for the dogs. What you need to understand is that word dogs is actually uh, a very intentional insult from Jewish people to unclean Gentiles. This is, this is what Jewish people call people who aren't Jewish or aren't clean enough to enter the temple. And so Paul is taking these people who are saying, we're going to be ritually clean. You got to be super Jewish. You got to be super ritually clean. And he's going, you're not even actually really Jewish. You dog, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, When Paul gets really fired up, 
he really does a really interesting thing sometimes in the original language. And here, he, he, there's like a wordplay here. All these words have like a cadence and a rhythm to them. They sound very similar for, for dogs, for evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. And if you were to read this out in the Greek, you would, you would feel this like rhythm, like, he's, like he got fired up. And he's, he's dropping the mic on them and coming hard after these guys. And this idea of mutilate the flesh is saying that there is now no longer any actual spiritual benefit to circumcision, you're adding something and requiring it that is not actually spiritually beneficial. It's a dig again, comparing them actually to pagans. See, pagans, in order to please their gods, would mutilate their flesh. If you remember the story uh, in Kings where uh, Elijah goes against the prophets Baal, and they, uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament because it's just really funny to me because I play it out in my head. I don't know about you, but movies play in my head when I read stories. And the movie of Elijah going against all these prophets, and, and he goes, look, we'll build an altar, you build an altar, and uh, we'll call out to our gods to rain fire down on the altar, and we'll see how it goes. And as a matter of fact, you can even pour water all over mine. You can, you can douse it. You can get it as wet as you want because my God... Uh, can, can still light this thing on fire. But you go first, you know, you, you do your thing. You go first, take as long as you need. And, and so they go, and one of the things they do is they mutilate their flesh. They start cutting themselves as a pagan way of getting the attention of their gods. And so the way that even Paul words this phrase, mutilate the flesh, is not just saying that there's less significance and benefit spiritually to circumcision as much as he's saying you might as well be a pagan Worshiping the God of Baal, mutilating the flesh, hoping that you can gain your God's attention. That's not who our God is. And then he says something that to those who believe this would have been wildly shocking statement when he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For we are the circumcision. Now, why would this have been so shocking? Most of the Philippian believers, if you remember from when we started this and looked at Acts chapter 16, who did we have, right? We had Lydia, this lady who owns a business who's Asian. She's not Jewish. We have the slave girl who's not Jewish. We have the Roman prison guard who's not Jewish, and this church gets planted by a whole bunch of not Jewish people, which is why the Judaizers are coming in and going, I'm glad you heard from Paul. That's great. Now we just need to line you up and make you Jewish so that you can really follow Jesus. And so when Paul says, for we are the circumcision, he's saying, all of you uncircumcised Gentiles and me, we are the circumcision. That the circumcision was never just meant to be an outward display of something. As a matter of fact, the way that we make the same mistake today is we assume because we were baptized at some event when we were children that everything's right between us and God. But if it was only an outward display and it wasn't relative to something inward miraculous that God did by renewing your spirit and your heart and your soul, then it was a waste. You just got wet. And Paul says, we are the circumcision, that what actually matters is whether you are a child of God. So who, who are the circumcision? Who worship the spirit 
of God. And there's a direct uh, contrast here in the language from those who mutilate the flesh and those who worship the spirit. And even that word worship is not so much the idea of the word of like what we just did singing songs as much as it is uh, your life. It's actually the same uh, word for, for worship used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the worship that Paul is talking about when he says, for we are the circumcision, those who worship, those who serve Christ, those who have given their life to Christ. And, and, not, and again, given their life, not in the pray this prayer and repeat after me and that you've given your life. No, like, like in, in their actual life, they've surrendered their actual life, their daily life over to Jesus. Those who serve, those who uh, by the mercies of God present their bodies as a living sacrifice, those are the ones of which he's talking about here. And then he says, in glory in Christ. This word of glory in Christ is uh, it's akin to boast in, to boast in Christ. Uh, not boast in circumcision, but to boast in Jesus. And I, I couldn't help but in studying that passage to think about this last Wednesday night. On Wednesday nights, I've been teaching through some of the names of God in here in the sanctuary and on Zoom. And we were looking at the, the name Jehovah Nessi this last Wednesday night, which is the Lord is my banner. And, and really in the midst of, uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, in the midst of election craziness and in the midst of Florida Georgia weekend, where we all got a lot of banners we want to wave, that the Bible teaches us that those things aren't our banner, that the Lord is our banner. Amen. Just the Lord. Amen. Not the Lord plus your political party or your favorite college or your country of origin or any of those things, but the Lord is what we boast in. The Lord is it. And those who serve Christ with their lives and boast in Jesus, they are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. And so glory in Christ. And so Paul dives deep in here. And then let's go next to this next few verses. Looking at the very end of verse 3, it says, Put no confidence in the flesh. Everybody say, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. If there were one phrase that we need to pull out of today, this is it. If there are one phrase that you need to evaluate in your own heart and your own life and talk with God and ask him where you've put confidence in the flesh, this is, this, is, this is the thing I want you to meditate on. To put no confidence. No, none. No confidence in the flesh. See, these Judaizers are, are in danger of messing up a really good thing. See, the book of Philippians is one of the few books one of the few letters where Paul doesn't seem to really be that upset with what's going on in the church. You read Corinthians, you read Galatians, you read all these other letters, and for the most part, Paul spends a lot of time correcting a lot of bad theology. And he spends a lot of time correcting some bad behavior. Almost entirely, Paul here is very encouraging towards the Philippians. He doesn't even actually call out the Philippians themselves. He's warning them. He says, look out. For these dogs, for these evildoers, for these mutilators of the flesh who are going to mess up a really good thing. 
Things, things are going well with the Philippi church. But there's a real danger of starting to put confidence in the flesh. And these Judaizers are going to come in and they're going to make it about things that it's not about. And so his warning against this, for we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Don't Look, it doesn't matter how Jewish you are. And think about it. What this must have been like, if you are the, the Lydia, the, the lady that is in the Bible study, it's a God-fearer, but you don't know the full gospel, but you know you love God, and all of a sudden Paul comes and shares the gospel with you. You open your home, and a church gets planted in your home, and you got this slave girl, and you got this Roman guard, and God starts moving amongst all these different pagans and Gentiles, and maybe some Jewish people come in the mix, and, and then all of a sudden, and you're so excited, and there's great energy, but then some Jewish person comes to you, and tells you what you have is incomplete. Chances are you're going to go, man, it's already great. So if you can make it even better, then please share with me what we can add to this. And, and, and there's a real danger here that can start to make you feel insignificant. There's a, a, a Christian skit I saw a long time ago uh, where uh, it's a new believer and they're so excited and all of a sudden everybody just starts handing them these things like, oh, well, you got to make sure that you do this. You got to make sure you do this. And the next thing you know, like they're carrying around all these things and they don't have joy in the Lord anymore because they feel so obligated and beat down. Listen to me. The good news of the gospel is so, so good. And it's so freeing. It's so freeing. And you don't have anything to bring to it but the sin that needs to be forgiven. You have nothing to bring to it but your betrayal, but your hostility. And yet, what do you get in exchange? You get a new heart. You get a new eternity. You get adopted into the family. You get redeemed. You become a co-heir of Christ, a co-laborer of Jesus in the reconciling work of the Lord. It's so good. Don't let anyone anyone mess that up what you can have in Jesus and so they have this idea of how Jewish you got to be so Paul's going to come in hard and he's going to say put no confidence in the flesh though basically though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also so another they're saying they have confidence in the flesh well, I could have that too if, if as a matter of fact he's going to say if, if anybody could really brag about how Jewish they were I've got I've got a better resume than they do. I do. I have a better Jewish resume, Paul says. He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Like, whatever, whatever joker has snuck into this church and tried to tell you these things, however Jewish they think they are, I'm more Jewish than they are. Circumcised on the eighth day. I wasn't talking to this. I was born in a Jewish family, and I was circumcised on the right day, on the commanded day, in the correct way. I'm a people... Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, don't put confidence in the flesh of any kind through rituals, eighth day, through your ethnicity of the nation of Israel, of your tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, of your tradition, the Hebrew of Hebrews, of your education as a Pharisee, of your zeal as a persecutor, of your ability to follow the rules, blameless. 
If at any point in your relationship with God, you feel like you bring something to the table in which God should return favor to you, you have put confidence in the flesh. Listen to me. Whatever your resume, whatever your Baptist Christian resume is, it's hogwash. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count for anything. It doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't get you anything. And that's part of the bad news, which is also part of the good news. You know why? Because I'm not getting graded on this. Praise God. If I were graded on my day at the end of each day and I had to stand before God and get evaluated, I would fail every single day, usually before I even get out of bed. Praise God, we're we're not measured off of what we accomplish. So don't make the mistake of thinking you are. And here's where this gets good. Here's where this gets really, really, really good. Is you may, if you start to evaluate your own life, and maybe instead of thinking how great your resume is, maybe you've also let the devil lie to you and convince you how bad your resume is. I mean, I, you know, I read my Bible for like a minute this morning. I got bored already. I try to pray, but I don't know how to. I've never shared the gospel with anybody. I gave 20 bucks in the offering plate once and felt pretty good about it, but I remember one time I got asked to pray at the fellowship dinner, and I don't even know what I said, but I think I heard some people laughing. Or maybe, maybe you've got a list of your resume of sins. Maybe you start to list out the devil puts in your mind, well, you know, remember that thought you had? Remember what you did to that person? Remember what you did with that? Or when you stole that, and you start to add this resume, but listen to me, don't put any weight or any confidence in your flesh one way or the other, because the good news is you can't be bad enough. You can't out the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You're not that good at sinning. As good as sinning as you are, which you are, you're good at it. I'm good at it. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's anything in the world I'm better at than sinning. I can justify it. I can tell you why I'm doing it. I can give you all the reasons, and I can probably even convince you it's okay for me to do it. But I can't outsend the grace of Jesus. Just like there's nothing I can do that makes him bring favor to me, there's nothing I can do to make him love me more. It's so good. There's nothing I can do to make him love me less. There's nothing I can do where God would love me any less than he already does. And that's about as good a news as it gets. And so I think about when I read this in resumes, I've pointed it out many times here. One of my favorite moments in the book of John is John chapter 4. Because when I look, when I preached through John a few years ago, I couldn't help but notice this contrast between John 3 and John 4. In John 3, Jesus meets Nicodemus, who uh, has a great pedigree. I mean, he's highly educated. He's, I mean, he could, he could tout almost exactly what Paul touts here in Philippians of how Jewish he is, how well-known he is, how highly respected he is. And we, as a matter of fact, John lets us know his name because he knows that people who are going to read that would know who he is. And, and he's this highly educated guy, and he comes to Jesus kind of hiding by night because he's scared for anybody to see him hanging out with Jesus because he can't figure out who Jesus is. And he asked Jesus pretty plainly, are you the Messiah? 
And Jesus gives some interesting analogies. We love to quote John 3.16, but don't forget in this conversation, Nicodemus did not leave with a clear understanding of the gospel. Nicodemus left not knowing what Jesus meant. Jesus talked about bronze serpents and the wind and being born again and being born of water and spirit. And, and Nicodemus is like, okay, I don't, I don't know what's going on. But then the very next chapter, Jesus intentionally goes against cultural norms and walks through Samaria. And it says that he, he, he had to. Like this, is, this, was, this was the business of the father, of the creator of the universe, that the very first person in the gospel of John that Jesus clearly, without any analogies uh, to, to cloud it, he gives an analogy, but clearly gives his identity to is a Samaritan woman with a bad resume. I mean, a bad reputation. And he seeks her out. See, Nicodemus comes after Jesus for his own motives and his own reasons, and Jesus leaves him unclear. But this lady, Jesus, listen to me, Jesus pursues her. Don't miss that and how beautiful that is. Because I want to tell you why that's beautiful, because I, I was the Samaritan woman. I was a sinner in such desperate need of grace, and Jesus pursued me. Me. I don't deserve that. I did not deserve for Jesus to save me. But he did. And so Jesus didn't reveal clearly to Nicodemus at that point. I do believe Nicodemus gets saved later. But directly he goes after the Samaritan woman. And in such great love and mercy, he reveals who he really is. So I don't care what your resume is. Jesus doesn't care how good or bad your resume is. As a matter of fact, it's not like things got better for Paul because that's his resume before he came to know Christ. But in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two through 29, what does it say? He says, he's talking about these people again. He gets so frustrated with, and he goes, are they Hebrews? So am I. I could just see him getting like riled up, his blood boiling, and he's just getting mad. And why do they keep doing this? And he goes, Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman. He even catches himself in the middle of writing and like, what is, Why do I have to even talk this way? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times. I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things. This is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? See, who are the circumcision? We are the circumcision who serve God and glorify him. Jesus said to that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 223, 
when she was talking about people arguing whether Israelites or, or Samaritans really worship God correctly. And you say worship on this mountain, and my people say worship on that mountain. And, and Jesus says something so beautiful, John 4, 23. But the hour is coming. As a matter of fact, it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Paul wants these Judaizers and you and I to know that worshiping God is not about your resume. It's not about your ethnicity, your nationality, your education, how good a sinner or bad a sinner you are, how much you know about church or how often you cuss. That's about worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And that is what it is. It's the Lord being your banner and nothing else. And then he says something after giving his resume and showing you just how Jewish he was and is. And and then in the Corinthians passage, how much he's given for Christ. And again, we feel like he's maybe this varsity level that we can't understand. But what Paul would tell you is that he's not. The only thing he's varsity level at is that sinning. And he talks to us about the most beautiful thing in this passage, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Look at verses 7 through 9. The language he uses here is, is, is a business language. I mean, he's talking about business, like, like as, if there were, as if this were a series of transactions. But whatever gain I had, and other, whatever, whatever that prophet gave me, whatever it was to be the most Jewish guy that ever lived, whatever it is to have suffered more than any other Christian, whatever gain that gives me, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish uh, is a nice way of translating that. Um, Paul, Paul is using some colorful uh, PG-13 language here on purpose that either refers to human excrement and or spoiled food that is thrown to dogs. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This, this is where it's at. This is the reality that Jesus is better than the best things you've ever experienced on this earth. Listen to me, Jesus is better Maybe you are concerned for the future of our country, and maybe you should be, or maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. I know that God is still on the throne. He is still in control, and that whatever it is you desire to have happen, it doesn't count worth anything compared to surpassing, the surpassing, the transcendent, the larger than you can understand worth of knowing Christ. Listen to me, having a great marriage and having amazing kids and a full 
bank account and an awesome house and a great vehicle and all of those other things, like that, even that, it won't get you anywhere near. There's surpassing worth of knowing Christ. As a matter of fact, what we will see Paul continue to say is that suffering with Christ is even better than succeeding in the world. That that's how good Jesus is. That it would be better to suffer with Jesus than to have the best this world has to offer. So this is why he gets so fired up about circumcision. In his conclusion of his letter to the Galatians, he said, this is a long passage, but I want you to see this. Galatians 6, 12 through 16. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. In other words, these gods who are wanting to literally slice you don't even keep all the law themselves. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon, listen to me, the Israel of God. Again, Paul's digging at this Jewishness thing. And he's saying that circumcised or not circumcised, if you are a new creation, you are Israel. You are a son or daughter of Abraham. You are of the chosen people of God if you are a new creation. What we see Paul demonstrating here is what many have called the treasure principle from Matthew 13, 44, in the parable that Jesus gives, one of my favorite parables when he says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven being submitting to your life to Christ, serving Christ and glorifying him with your life. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, everybody say joy. joy. He goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Like hoarders, we have things in our lives in which we cling to because we have overestimated the value of which they can actually deliver. Stop clinging to worthless things. And with a loose grip on all the good things that God has given you, cling to Jesus. He is worth Losing everything. He is. He's that good. This is what Paul says. As a matter of fact, so here's a quote. John Piper gives us this quote to show us how good it is. He says, the more we see of Christ, the more deeply we know him and treasure him. And the more deeply we know him and treasure him, the more profoundly we are changed by him In every way, when we cling to worthless things, when we pursue selfish ambition, rivalry, conceit, our own banners, we get a foggy view of Jesus. You got to let go of those things and get them out of your view 
so that you can look to Jesus. And the more you see him, the more you'll fall in love with him, the more you'll treasure him, and the more you'll realize that he really is worth everything. Paul says this in 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him. Not know of him, not know stories about him, but know him. Intimate knowledge of the creator of the universe of which you were at one time a hostile enemy, but now forgiven, redeemed, loved. To know him. That's it. That's the greatest pursuit. There's literally nothing else this world has to offer that can pale in comparison. As a matter of fact, Paul would say in Romans 8, 15 through 18, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This all sounds like such beautiful, amazing language, and it is. But a lot of times when I hear people quote this passage, they stop right there. But don't stop right there, because if we stop right there, we may miss exactly what God has for us. And so think about all this beautiful of what Paul has just said. So we don't have a spirit of slavery. We don't have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of adoption. We've been adopted. We get to cry out, Abba, Father, this deep, intimate relationship with our Father of the universe. We're co-heirs with Christ. But then he says something that you've got to hear. Provided, provided, in other words, conditionally, this is part of it, provided we suffer with him. Why? In order that we may also be glorified with him. And then he says something so great here that this is a verse to hold on to. When things aren't going the way you want, when you feel like everything's bad, when you feel like you're in the midst of suffering, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen to me. Whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're clinging to, whatever it is that you think is going to scratch that itch, whatever it is that you think will be so fulfilling that if I can just attain this, then I will have arrived. If I can just feel this, if I can experience this, if I can reach this level, if I can accomplish this goal, if I can meet this person, if I can have this relationship, whatever it is, if I can have a bank account that says this, the book of Ecclesiastes shows us that none of that will ever amount to anything. It's like trying to grab the wind. You can't do it. So don't chase those things. Don't waste your life chasing things that you'll never be able to grab, like a dog trying to catch its tail. Paul says that if we'll just go all in on this pursuing, knowing Jesus thing, then even suffering is something we can be okay with. As a matter of fact, Paul would say that it's in that suffering 
that we grow closer to the Lord and we develop deeper intimacy and eventually are glorified in Him. So what are you clinging to? What are you hoarding in your attic or garage or of your heart that needs to go? Have you found this treasure in Jesus? I hope so. If you haven't, there's really literally nothing in this world I'd rather talk to you about. I don't know if you've picked up on this fact, but I'm a little bit passionate about this subject. And I would love to tell you more about what it means to find that treasure in the field. I hope that you know today the surpassing joy of Christ. Or surpassing, surpassing joy of knowing Him. No matter what happens between now and whenever, I hope you know that. Let's pray. Lord, I love you and I thank you for loving me. I don't deserve that. I am still overwhelmed that you would save me, that you would use me. Lord, I love this church so much. I pray that we would all fall so in love with you like Paul, that we'd be willing to lose it all just to chase you. Lord, I also thank you that you pursue us like the Samaritan woman. Lord, maybe if you're pursuing and wooing somebody and opening their heart in here today, Lord, let us rejoice in that. Let us celebrate that, Lord. Let us know that. May we be a shining light in the darkness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.